This is the Making Waves Mindset Show with your hosts, Richard DiBiase and Dave Moskowitz. Learn from our journey as we share the ups and downs of being your own boss. He wanted to do a deal quickly, like a lot of people do. I want to buy a business. How long is it going to take? And I, I said, there's no way I can tell you how long it's going to take, yeah. right? You, you, you start this process. You have to create a position for yourself in the marketplace where you start to make relationships with people who are in this industry so that when something happens for them, remember how I told you, it doesn't make sense to sell a good business, right? Unless you need to. Yeah. Well, the, the well executed, this is what it looks like is you make relationships with people in an industry that you want to acquire in. And they say, I'm not interested in selling. And you say, that's fine, but I'm interested in buying. So if anything changes, you let me know. Our education system teaches us that you do one thing, you get X result, and then you're given a pat on the head and a golden star, right? Yeah. And so people are taught this series of, of behaviors and reactions, and they're not very good with blank page situations where you can just do whatever you can dream up. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will come to me and they'll say, well, you know, how, how do you buy a business? What is the structure? And I'm like, whatever you negotiate. Welcome, everyone, to the Making Waves Mindset Show. On today's recording, we are joined by guest David Barnett, fellow Canadian, author, speaker, advisor, and former business broker. He sheds light on the complex and sometimes tricky process that comes to buying and selling and managing small businesses. It's a very interesting discussion, and we cover all angles. Join us as we make waves in episode 41. Well, welcome everyone to the Making Waves Mindset Show. We are excited to have an amazing guest, as always, Dave. Yes, welcome. Where do we start. Welcome. We we are we are back again for uh, another great episode with one of our amazing guests that we've uh, enticed to come sit on our show and give us some great information about um, about business and their journey. As always, subscribe to our show um, and uh, watch on YouTube, watch on uh, any other video platforms. And if you're on a podcast, listening on audio, make sure you subscribe. And as we always say, uh, or I always say, (laughs) if you are enjoying it, please subscribe and pass it on to someone uh, who is enjoying it as well. And if you're not enjoying it, pass it on to someone who you might think will enjoy it. Absolutely. We are, uh, we're excited to have uh, David Barnett on the program today on the show. We were introduced to David through two of our previous guests. So Rocky Lavalin, we spoke about money and the financial wealth side of the entrepreneurial journey and the mindset. And Giuseppe Grammatico, who I think was episode 2526 on franchise freedom. So it's been incredible to network and meet people all over North America. And now we have a fellow Canadian on yeah. board. And mm-hmm. uh, David, thank you for being with us. Oh, listen, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I love to get together and talk business. It's it's exciting when your passion and interest in your everyday job is all the same thing. Absolutely, right. absolutely. And we're going to discuss we're going to discover some of those things with everyone today. Um, David, I think the best thing to start off with is. Let's talk about who you are, where you came sure. from. Maybe you were in that nine to five and realized, hey, I don't like the golden handcuffs that keep me chained down and in the glass box. And our audience loves to hear the personal story. So let's dive into there and, and we'll let the journey flow. 
Well, it's interesting because I've always known that I was supposed to be a businessman, you know, <laughs> way, way back from when I was a kid, I was always had these entrepreneurial endeavors, you know. So as uh, someone who grew up in the Maritimes, you know, that started with shoveling snow. And then mm-hmm. the, the natural corollary of that, of course, is mowing lawns, right? And so you, you start to do that kind of stuff when you're a teenager. And and I don't know if you remember from the 80s, uh, Regal Greetings and Gifts. It was like a catalog sales thing where you would have these catalogs and you'd give them to your neighbors and they would place orders with you and you'd earn a commission. I was doing that yes. when I was 12. and wow. And so... I've always had an interest in business. Uh, if you recall those Dickie D ice cream bikes, the, yep. drive, the big coolers, yeah. uh, when I was 14, I was doing that and I was earning a commission on, you know, selling jumbo bars and rockets, rockets. and fly balls and all the favorite ice creams from Dickie D. The, the fly balls and, um, and so I always knew that it was something for me. And so when I got into high school and the guidance counselor was trying to get me to, you know, choose my path, I was like, well, I need to go to business school so I can be a businessman, right? It took me a few years in business school, though, to realize that's not what they do there. What mm-hmm. what they do at business school is they turn you into what I now refer to as a Fortune 500 bureaucrat. So they they make you into a middle manager, right? So you sit around, you you like look at case studies about why General Electric should enter, you know, the whatever market in a new country, and you're like, this has got nothing to do with the businesses I see when I'm driving around the town, right? Yeah. And those are the businesses that I was interested in. So. <clears throat> I was very, very fortunate when I graduated from university. Uh, first of all, I started a little business with a friend and he met a girl and moved off to Toronto. So um, I ended up looking for a job because I didn't want to carry on on my own. And I got hired by the Yellow Pages. And so if you recall, you know, in the before time, you know, before <laughs> smartphones and everything, if if you needed something you locally, you needed to look in the yellow pages. That's where you found everything to do to buy for services or whatnot. Yes. Yeah. And, and back in those days, Google was around, but if you typed plumber into Google, no matter where in the world you were, you'd find a plumber in San Francisco because right. they hadn't figured out localized searching yet. And so I started working for the yellow pages. I was with them for seven years and wow. I went and I met with the owners and managers of small local businesses. And I got to ask them you know, the big question was next time the phone rings, who would you like it to be? Mm. And so I would help craft these advertising programs for people uh, based on what kind of industry they were in. And I got to learn about their business models and how they made money. And this was where I, I like to say I developed the the mile wide inch deep kind of expertise in small business where I had a chance to talk to all these different people and learn about their business. However, um, Google was catching up throughout that time period. So, so this was the mid nineties, early two thousands. And I realized that the days would be numbered for people that were, you know, selling yeah. yellow page ads. And so I decided to leave. I was young, unmarried, uh, didn't have kids at the time. And I thought I'm going to get into business. And my, I'm actually, my first impulse was to buy a franchise. Uh-huh. And so I went down the path of looking at a franchise opportunity they came back and told me my market was too small. So I was living, I, I, I live in Moncton. I was living in Moncton then. And um, they said, your market's too small. And I thought, you know what? I don't think that's true. Mm. So this is, this was uh, what I did out of a fit of entrepreneurial sort of, you know, excitement is I simply sat down and I wrote down everything I understood about their business and their business model and what they did as a franchise and I read that book, E-Myth by Michael Gerber, and I decided to rip them off. 
Okay. So I created my own independent business, just following as much as I could of that franchise model mm-hmm. and paid someone to create a logo, hired someone to, you know, uh, do like the design work. We really did a great job. We had uniforms printed up at Mark's work warehouse. Like, like we did the whole thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was so well put together that people actually asked us if it was a franchise, right? right. Oh, is this a franchise business? And and we would tell them no, but you know we're we're, we're open to, to that. <laughs> we're trying to deliver you know great service and everything, right? And so instead of investing over a hundred grand, we did it for like twelve. Wow. Um, and so again, I had a partner in this one too, and uh, so you know I'm I'm quite the expert on partners, and so I ran that for about a year and a half with the partner, and then his interests started to wane, and my interests started to wane, and this was the first business we sold. So. We found someone to buy it and we sold the business and I didn't think anything of it. Um, I got into financing after that. And so I actually paid a company out of California who had a training program to teach me how to be a commercial debt broker for small business. Wow. And so I hung out a shingle and I started to build a professional practice and people would come to me when they were trying to get money for their business to grow or acquire equipment or, or what have you. And I started to meet people who were trying to get money to buy a business around that time. And so it was kind of a new thing for me. I knew that businesses could be bought. I knew that businesses could be sold. Um, I knew from my business school education, you know, my way around financial statements and all this kind of thing. And it was really quickly discerned by me that a lot of the people that I was meeting, um, they weren't really being very well served. So the, the deals weren't being put together very well. There were huge areas of consideration being ignored. Um, you know, people were buying businesses, but they weren't having discussions about operating capital requirements and things like yeah. that. And the people that I was using as sources of capital, they were tied in. You remember the term asset-backed commercial paper? It was a pretty famous term around 2006, 2008. Okay. It, it, it's what led to the financial crisis. Well, you know, people would come to me looking for a loan or a lease on equipment after being told no by their banker typically. Mm. And I would find the money through one of these alternative lenders who would package the loans together into these pools and they would sell them off in these bonds against these pools of loans. And that was asset backed commercial paper. So when the financial crisis occurred, those companies are the ones that ended up seizing up. And so my financing business kind of came to an end immediately. And I realized, Hey, I could probably do a really great job helping some of these people that are trying to buy businesses. And that's what uh, caused me to have to pivot. And I decided to get into business brokerage. And so business brokers are to businesses, what real estate agents are to real estate, right? To houses. And so I, I thought I need to do this properly though. And so I joined one of the big international franchise brands for business brokerage because it gave me access to training. And so over about a two-year period, I worked under the wing of of someone who was more experienced. And I went through and I did my professional designation. I had to do courses in Ottawa, Orlando, and in in Atlanta. Wow. And eventually, I became the first person um, in New Brunswick to, to earn a professional designation in business brokerage, which had been around since the 70s. Just and and here's something that is of particular interest because I know your audience is largely Canadian. Um, the world of buying and selling businesses in Canada is completely different from the way it is in the states, of course. and a lot of it has to do with tax policy. Yeah. 
So in the States, you can have an asset like an apartment building or a business. And if you sell that asset and have a gain and you put the entire proceeds from that sale into the same kind of asset that is bigger. So if you sell a three unit apartment block and buy a six unit apartment block, you can defer the gain and you can keep rolling your money into bigger assets along this chain. And then at the end, when you sell your last asset, you then face the gains on all those gains you made throughout the life of that reinvestment chain. Okay. And you can do it with business too. In Canada, we don't have this feature. And so in Canada, it really doesn't make sense to sell a good profitable business unless you need to. Like the, like the whole, all these stories you hear about people cashing out, about like, like all these things. If you sit down and you look at the tax consequences, it really doesn't make sense. It makes much more sense just to keep a business if it's good in Canada, right? And so I was three years into business brokerage. I sold 36 companies for other people here in the Maritimes. And every time I had to get a business for sale, I had to find a new customer who wanted to sell. And every time I had to find a buyer to buy that business, I had to find someone new. So the acquisition costs on both sides of this marketplace was continuous. I had to acquire one new customer, make a sale, and then they'd be gone, right? The sellers would retire. The buyers would buy the business. They'd be happy. I only had one or two buyers who bought more than one business over the course of that time. And I was getting very frustrated because things weren't going down the way that I was told by the franchisor that they should have been. So I remember one day I was talking with uh, the franchisee who operated the St. Louis, Missouri office. And he was talking to me about his regular customers. I'm like, what do you mean regular customers? And he was saying, well, I got, I have these people who will buy a business, run it for two or three years. They'll pay down their debt. They'll grow the business. They'll add employees, come back to me. I'll sell it for them. Then they'll take that money. They'll buy a bigger business. Yeah. And then three years later, they'll come back and do it again. And I'm like, this is completely missing from what we're, we're seeing in my market. And that's when I realized that it had to do with this tax issue, right? Or the tax policy or the way that it works. And so, you know, in the world of business, I started off on a path that I think a lot of your listeners probably are looking at, you know, I wanted to get into business. I tried the franchise route and eventually did my own independent business. Then I, I got out of that through a sale, which was pretty, when I look back at it, knowing what I know today, I was pretty lucky that things worked out the way that they did for me in that deal. Um, and then I got into a new business and I built up that business. Eventually, I had to get out of the world of business brokerage because it is the most insane business you can ever imagine from a cash flow point of view. Um, in 2011, was my last year in, in brokerage. In the end of August, I was looking at six deals closing. They were going to bring me a quarter of a million dollars in commissions. And this is what happened between then and Christmas. Uh, One deal fell apart because it was a franchise business and the franchisor was a jerk to the buyer. And the buyer said, I love the business, but I'm not getting into business with those guys. So that deal fell apart. Another deal was a government regulated industry where the buyer would have to qualify for a license from a government department. And they wouldn't give him them one. So that deal fell apart because the buyer couldn't get the license. The third deal had received a finance letter from a bank to finance the purchase of the business. And then during due diligence, the the bank changed their mind. They they undid it. They said, no, we changed our mind. We don't like that industry anymore. And so that deal fell apart. The other three deals did close, but my quarter million dollars of commission shrank to 110,000 
And it was basically enough money for me to pay off all of my credit cards and lines of credit and stuff. And I just thought, this is insane. I cannot make a household budget being in this industry because um, I never relying on everyone else. Well, exactly. And you never know when the deal is going to close. You can't be certain when the deal is going to close. Everybody else in the deal has a regular income except the broker. Bankers have a regular paycheck. Lawyers have many clients, so they got all kinds of stuff going on. Same with accountants, right? The buyers usually have a job or they have another business. If there's a delay, they just, they just stay doing that. The sellers usually have a profitable business. If there's a delay, they just get to run their business longer, right? And so everyone really doesn't care. I mean, they, they want the deal to close on time, but it's only the broker's paycheck who is on the line for the deal to close on time. And so... In those three years, every year I had a growing business, but what the financial statements wouldn't show you if you looked at the annual results is that every year there was a seven to nine month period with no deals being closed. Even though on average I was closing one a month, it's not the case of how it played out day to day. And so you would end up with these big checks coming in for commission and then you'd be afraid to spend the money. And then over the course of time, your overhead would eat into that money and then you would be always worried about when your next deal was going to close. Then something could happen, causing a deal to not close. So one of the last deals I did was for a fried chicken franchise, and I signed them up in 2008. I had that file for three years. I sold that business three times. The oh first gosh. two deals did not end up closing because of different reasons, right? And so it was only the last one. So, I mean, the commission on that deal was a six-figure commission. But it took me three years to earn it. And so what's so, your time and value? Like, what well, are you putting in to get out? Exactly. And so, and so then I realized, you know, I can't do this anymore. So I, I left. I sold the business to one of my associates who kept the office running. And I became a banker. And I was a banker for four years. And I was managing the revolving credit program for a, a big international banking organization here in the Maritimes. And I would spend a lot of time in my car driving around visiting different clients. And my phone would ring every once in a while. And it was, it was people who were given my name and phone number by other people who had done deals and things. And so people would call me up and they'd say, Dave, I'm trying to do this deal and I need help. Or I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look at this business. And my lawyer tells me what I should get out of the deal, but he can't, he's not really very helpful in negotiating. Or, or my accountant is telling me one thing, but the guy's telling me another thing. And, and I'm not sure who to believe or how to negotiate this mm. or, or how to work my way through this. And so at first I just told these people, no, I don't do that anymore. And then I realized, wait a minute, I, I do know how to help these people. I have all the knowledge from my years as a broker. Um, I just, I'm not available because I'm working full time. So I would say to people, you know, I could help you, but I'd have to work as a consultant and I'd have to do it on the side. I've got a full time job. And people would be very happy with that. They'd say, yeah, okay, that's great. You know, let's meet Thursday night. Let's meet Saturday. And I just started billing people by the hour for my time. And it developed a whole new kind of business model, this little side hustle while I was with the bank. And then the bank reorganized and offered me a package. And I thought, whoa, wait a second here. I'm, I'm already billing into the five figures in my side hustle here. If I put a full-time effort into this, I can build a new business. And that's what I did. So yeah. I created a whole new kind of business to help people buy and sell businesses, which is a consulting practice, not a brokerage. And so I work with buyers and I work with sellers and I help them through the process. And I do 
consulting work in that I do things that people can't do on their own. So I'll help sellers with valuations, with creating the, the business profile or the package that we present to buyers. I'll manage ad programs for them. Um, but I will not act as a broker. I'm, I'm consulting with them. They're selling the business on their own. I'm just helping them. And with buyers as well, I'll do analysis of businesses they find for sale. I'll, I'll show them what a deal should look like. I'll help them with the things they need to go and get financing at the bank, business plan, cash flow statements, uh, forecasts, that kind of thing. And so, but the difference for me is that I'm not waiting for a deal to close to get a commission. And so I'm charging people for the work that I'm doing. Basically, I took the business model of lawyers and accountants and I copied it for use in being a person that helps people buy and sell businesses. And so that's what I've been doing now for years. And then in support of that, um, I've written a bunch of books on these topics and I've got a YouTube channel with about 500 videos and it's largely driven just on people's questions. People submit questions to me, you know, how do I do this? How do we do that? And I just answer the question and you know, that's what brings people together on the internet is when people type a question into Google if I've answered that question in a video, yeah. then people come into my audience and that's how I meet my new customers. And so every week I'm, I'm meeting new people that want to use my services. And that's how I'm able to run, you know, this business. When I work with people all over the world, most of my clients are actually in the States. Um, and I do it from here in Moncton. You know, this is an incredible story of resiliency as well, because when one door closed and it wasn't by your choice, you had something to fall back on. And I think for our audience, as they enter the journey of entrepreneurship or they're in the middle of it or they're a little advanced, they might want to think, well, what can I fall back on? Do we have a nest egg of real estate assets? Do we have other side hustles or revenue streams coming in? And even I think this pandemic, because Dave and I have spoken about it, has showcased how vulnerable people are, that they're mm. only relying on one income. For some reason, it's a, I think it goes back to schooling when you were talking about that degree and what they're teaching you in business school. No education system in Canada, US, except I think Florida, we spoke about that in our previous recording, talks about financial literacy or financial education. So people are going to business school to learn about business, but they're actually not learning anything about being an entrepreneur and running a business, it's all about what you say, case theory and mm -hmm. what if scenarios. So start looking at other exit strategies, start having other things planned. And I think that's the lesson I've learned, at least from just your introduction. Like, that's incredible. Well, you know, it's funny that you talk about, you know, business school. I, I run into people all the time who've, who've studied business. And if we start Don't to talk own a business, about, <laughs> and if we start to talk about <laughs> personal um, financial stuff, I'll start to talk about, you know, like my household has a balance sheet. My household has an income statement, right? And, and there's certain things that you would do in a business that just makes sense in a business point of view. And so I apply some of those strategies in, into myself, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's like, you know, if you're going to run a business and you want to run it in a resilient fashion, do you pay your bills when they're due or do you pay them early? Right. And so, if you pay your bills early, then it's kind of like you've got this asset in that if you know that if you ever needed to, you could then just start paying them on time. Yeah. It's almost like you could build in a 30-day buffer, right, into your, your cash flow of your business. Yeah. Well, you can do that in your household too, yeah. right? You, you can pay bills when they're due or you can pay them early, right? And so when you start to talk about some of these ideas and concepts that are givens in business, it's amazing to me how many business people look at you and just say, 
Well, I, I do that all the time with my business, but I never even thought to apply those ideas to my household. Right. And I don't, I don't know why there's such a barrier, but most businesses, if they relied on one single product or service, they would immediately understand that they faced a vulnerability and they would start to think, you know, how can we diversify? How can we make our revenues more resilient or how can we lock in revenues with contracts or something like that? Right. But when people look at their households, they don't even think the same way. They just make the assumption that things are going to be great. And and maybe that has to do a little bit with the culture in general, yeah. you know, like you know, em- so. employees don't need to worry as much because you can get, you know, EI if, if you need to. Right. Well, you know, if you're a professional person earning six figures, that EI check isn't very much. No. I mean, people should look into that. It's, it's, I think it's like 900 bucks or something every couple of weeks. Yeah. Most people that are earning a good salary today won't be able to make ends meet on that $900. We learned that during the pandemic when oh, yes. a lot of high income people ended up having to collect that CERB money. Right? right. And yeah, they got the maximum government benefit, but it still wasn't nearly enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the money that you're going to get in compensation for the work that you're not doing is not going to be close to the work that you actually do. Yeah. Yeah. You'll um, never, you'll never, it'll never equal out. And I think, I think the other side of it too is people are not wanting to have these discussions to plan, right? Business is a calculated risk. It doesn't matter whether it's a franchise model or you, you know, as an entrepreneur have developed your own innovative product or something. It's what calculated risks are you going to take to weather the storm when it comes? Do you have reserve? Is there capital set aside? Uh, both Dave and I are venturing in additional business things right now. We can elaborate later. But uh, one of the biggest things we're looking at for, for my wife and I at the, at the current moment is where is that capital going to be? Can it float for X number of months? Are we going to be able to cover the employees, the operating expenditures, the vehicles? And then the other side of it, Rocky talked about businesses. People don't even know what their business profits are. They go, it makes money, but the business isn't making money. It's like, how long have you been operating this? And there's no profit. So it's really understanding. People need to know about money. Mm -hmm. Um, They need to understand that in business. And we're by no means experts. I'm not going to lump Dave into it, but there's a lot to learn. And I think it's, it's, it's a good credit to your story that you had something going. And these should be life lessons for our followers and listeners today. Start looking at these things, reading, go to your YouTube channel, continue to listen to our communities and change your mindset when it comes to that relationship with, with ensuring your business is successful financially as well. Well, let's, let's talk about, you know, risk because, um, the conventional wisdom is that if you want a higher rate of return on your money, you have to take greater risk, right? But if you look at the most profitable enterprises in our society, in general, there are people like banks, right? Banks are not known for taking risks, are they? No. Right? So so there's actually something false about this notion that higher returns come from higher risks. And so what business actually allows us to do is an, is allows us the freedom to to participate in what I call risk arbitrage. Hmm. So what do we want to do? What's the, what, what is the negative possible outcome if it goes wrong? And then you can stop yourself and say, now, how can I reorganize this so that I can remove that risk or I can remove that potentiality? Right. And so it, it's, 
it allows because there's no rules and this is again where people i think have a hard time our education system teaches us that you do one thing you get x result and then you're given a pat on the head and a golden star right and so people are taught this series of of behaviors and reactions and they're not very good with blank page situations where you can just do whatever you can dream up. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will come to me and they'll say, well, you know, how, how do you buy a business? What is the structure? And I'm like, whatever you negotiate. And, and they don't get it. Right. And then I'll introduce it, the, the notion of, you know, well, how do you pay for a business? Well, you, you pay for it with money from three different places. The first obviously is your own money. The second maybe is from a bank. And the third quite often is money from the seller. So how do you buy a business with money from the seller? It just means you don't pay for the whole thing on closing day. That's right. For a lot of people, this is a big eye opener, right? But, but then they will apply what they have always known about loans to the seller financing. They'll say, well, then do I pay them over this, you know, many months with this amount of interest or whatever? And I'm like, I don't know, whatever you negotiate. And, 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 and people have a hard time like loosening up the reins, right? Because Every time you've had a loan, it's either a mortgage or a car loan or, yeah. or a personal loan, and the bank tells you what the rules are, and you have to accept it or not, right? I, I have a client in New Jersey who just bought a business. He negotiated quarterly payments um, on the seller financing, and the first year is interest only. Wow. So the the financing, the the payment burden in this first year in business is quite a bit lower than if he had gone into it just thinking he was going to pay you know, 6% interest paid monthly over five years or something like that. The, when you realize that the whole landscape is open to negotiation, then people have to get creative. And some people are very uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So can these things apply, David, to that proven model like a franchise? Are franchises, for example, willing to negotiate with you? Well, it, it depends. It depends on how established they are and what the demands are for the franchise. So, you know, a, a few things about franchises. Um, number one, if you buy a new franchise and open up a new franchise business, you're still opening a new business. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You're, you're, you're getting some of the formula for success in that you're going to get an operating manual and like a brand name that's proven to work in other models and yeah. things like this, right? But you don't really know what the sales are going to be. You don't really know what the earnings are going to be. All you are operating on is some kind of forecast. So the path that a lot of people make when they that finally leads them to me looks like this. They say, I want to be in business, right? And then they start looking at starting a business and they go, wow, there's a lot to starting a business. Then maybe they stumble across franchise opportunities and they say, oh, well, this is easier. They're going to tell me what I need to do, Right. And then you might realize, but wait a minute, I'm still borrowing money, putting in my own investments, and we don't have sales or any guarantee of earnings yet. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they'll come to the idea, well, what if I bought a business that was already functioning, that already had customers and sales and profits, right? And then I I could buy this thing and immediately be making money. The problem then that some people fall into is that if you don't structure the deal correctly, if you don't go about it correctly, you can still end up in a risk position where there are still unknowns and uncertainties and you still face a downside. The best acquisition deals are made where the risk is shared with the seller or you do it in such a fashion that um, the risks are mitigated to such a degree that, that it really is a win-win deal for you. 
And so and it, a lot of it takes just the work to find a good deal and the willingness and the ability to not have to do it. So, you know, you talk about leverage and negotiation, right? If, if somebody wants to buy right now, there's not many cars available for sale. If somebody wanted yeah. to buy a pickup truck and you have one for sale, uh, the price of used pickup trucks has gone up because there's not many available, right? So the sellers have leverage. When you're looking at buying a business, the only leverage that a buyer has is the willingness to not do a deal. To say, you know, this doesn't work for me. I'm going to back out of this. I'm not going to do the deal, right? And so one of the problems I see people put themselves into is they will be in a position maybe where they don't have an income. So if you look at somebody who just lost their job or they lost their income during the lockdowns, for example, and then they decided, I'm going to go buy a business. Well, you've got a certain amount of money that you're going to apply to the acquisition. And every month that goes by that you haven't bought a business, you have less money. Mm-hmm. Because you're, you're living off your capital, right? That's right. And what this does is it puts people into a scarcity mentality and they start to be a little bit needy. And then they start to feel like they need to chase deals because they need to get an income. And this is what leads people to do something bad that they will later to regret, right? So sometimes I'll have people that will, that will meet me online and they'll say, you know, I don't, I lost my job or whatever. I want to buy a business. What's the first thing I should do? And the first thing I should do, I tell them is go find a source of income so that you're not in this needy, scarce position. It's a mindset though. Yeah. That's the whole premise of our show is, is trying to wrap control and, and have a direction on your mindset because there's a lot of fear. And if you're not willing to get uncomfortable, then why even entertain this? There's a reason why Dave and left left Dave and I left our nine to five mm-hmm. because we were not afraid of getting uncomfortable. And we knew that there was going to be a level of, of calculated managed risk, but you need to do that. And you need to control your mindset and go, listen, you have to make this chance. You're, sorry, you're taking this chance. You need to make it work. So you've already planned out what you need to do. So don't worry about it. Focus on, on the product that you have or the model that you're working with and go with it. It's the second, Dave and I always say, the second you start chasing the dollars, mm-hmm. that's when you start losing things. You can't chase money. You have to let people organically come to you and do what you know how to do the best. Well, let me let me give you a glimpse into what this can look like from a successfully executed pathway. So one of the one of the things I do is I have a group coaching program of people who want to buy businesses. And it's been going now for four years. And so one of the people who joined when I first started four years ago, he's in the translation industry. And so he owned a translation business and he wanted to grow through acquisition. So he wanted to buy other similar businesses and integrate them into his existing company. And so he wanted to do a deal quickly, like a lot of people do. I want to buy a business. How long is it going to take? And I, I said, there's no way I can tell you how long it's going to take, yeah. right? You, you, you start this process. You have to create a position for yourself in the marketplace where you start to make relationships with people who are in this industry so that when something happens for them, remember how I told you, does it make sense to sell a good business, right? Unless you need to. Yeah. Well, the, the well executed, this is what it looks like is you make relationships with people in an industry that you want to acquire in. And they say, I'm not interested in selling. And you say, that's fine, but I'm interested in buying. So if anything changes, you let me know. And you nurture these relationships and you keep talking to these people and you make sure that they don't forget about you. And then when their doctor gives them bad news or their wife or spouse tells them they're getting a divorce, 
or if they realize they want to retire and all of a sudden they think, well, now I can't run the business. They already know someone that wants to buy it. Right. And so this is when the opportunities start to then come back. So this one felt, so this fellow, he worked for uh, almost a year to find his first seller that was motivated that wanted to do a deal from the time they first met until the deal was done was a 13 month process. Wow. So it was another year before the deal was done. That was his first acquisition done since he did that. He did it since he joined my group in that time, he kept working the same program. He was making outreach. He was uh, contacting people. He was having conversations. He was meeting people at association and industry events and then he started to get other people approaching him. So people would start to reach out to him. Hey, you were talking to a friend of mine and he told me you were looking to buy a business yeah. like we own and, I, and I'm looking to sell. And so this network started to grow and evolve and he started to gain a reputation as a guy who wanted to buy in this industry. Other people who he didn't have a direct connection with started to reach out to him. And all of a sudden he's in this position where after about, three years, he's starting to get two or three inquiries a month from people who want to sell to him. See, it's the right? power of, of, of networking and telling the world, so to speak, what you're looking for, because nobody can read your mind. It's like yeah. going to a real estate meetup or doing your, your, your coaching type opportunity. If people don't know what you're looking for, nothing's going to happen. But if you're putting yourself out there, people start to know that particular brand or have that reputation with you that this is what this individual is looking for. And we've come to realize when we started putting our show together, that was one of the biggest things. Nobody's going to talk about these things if there isn't already a place for people who are looking for that to come to. So now since we've grown, you know, we got introduced to you. We mm -hmm. got introduced to Giuseppe. We got, all these things start happening because we're putting ourselves out there. We want to talk about business. We want to talk about mindset. And if we didn't do that, uh, we would still be uh, God knows what, Dave, like, you know, but that's the power of communicating and telling people. Yeah, we would be, we would be just looking at each other, having our great <laughs> conversations that we always have. Max Hedron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's so true. It's so true. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting what you said about letting, you know, business come to you. It's, when you, a lot of people, when they start off, you know, they want to be everything to everyone because they want to chase every sale and they want to get every dollar through the door. Yeah. And when you grow and evolve in your business over time and things start to change and you start to get to that point where, um, you know, personally you have a resilient balance sheet, you know, your bills are paid early, you've got savings in the bank. And then within a bit, within your business, even you've got like a business savings account, like, you know, you don't have to worry about, writing your own paycheck every couple of weeks or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, then it's interesting because people will come to you to do work and you're like, do I want to do this work? Do I really want this client? And, you, and bizarre things start to happen. And this, this might sound incredible to the people that are new into this sort of space, but this happened to me in uh, January. So I was planning a trip to go to Mexico uh, for a week and just before my trip, I, somebody reached out to me and they had sort of a last minute emergency kind of project they wanted me to work on. And the timelines didn't work out. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going on this trip and I just won't be around. I don't think I can do it. And they said, we really want to work with you. You know, what, what does this look like? So, you know, I did what, you know, contractors did in the summer of 2020. I, I worked out my price and then I bumped it up because yeah. I was like, I really don't 
think I have time to do this job. And you know what happened? They said, that's great. Let's sign this up. Let's get going. And I'm realizing, hey, Perfect. now I've got this job, but I'm being paid for it, right? I'm being paid extra. And you don't necessarily start off there, but you can get there as long as you're doing the right things and you're focusing on having that abundant mentality. And that. and it really, I think if I think about my own business, it's it's that incremental improvement every day, you know, 100%. every day moving forward, every day, making sure you're doing the right thing every day, moving, moving, moving. The fellow I was telling you about, he's in due diligence on his third acquisition right now, Incredible. and he's negotiating his fourth. Incredible. Now he, after three acquisitions, his business is now four times the size of what the business he started with. Okay. <laughs> so, so if we want to use round, round figures, right? Like if he started with a million in sales, now he's at like 4 million, right? This fourth business that he's making a, a deal for now has tax problems. The, the seller wasn't doing tax returns properly. There is an outstanding liability. Um, he, he hasn't been audited or anything, but the buyer knows that there's a potential problem. And, and because of the industry they're in, he has to do it as an acquisition of shares which means that if he buys the shares of this business, he could end up being embroiled in the difficulties that might ensue from an audit or something like that. Mm -hmm. So if this was your first deal, most people would say, Oh my God, like this is, there's a potential for a problem with the feds. You know, there, there's a problem with the tax man, danger, Will Robinson yeah. run and run yeah. kind of thing. Right. But it's not his first deal. It's, it's his fourth. And you can leverage the you size of this. The size of this business is is quite small compared to the business he already owns. And if the worst case scenario plays out, and there is an audit, and there's a big tax bill due, and he has to pay that bill with all the penalties, he can deal with that. He can swallow that now. So so here he is in a position where most other people who are buyers in the field who might go knocking on that door they get afraid and they run away from that deal. He can actually manage to work that deal. And so what does that mean for him? It means that he's going into a riskier deal, true, but he also now is in a position where he gets to dictate more. He gets to say this deal is going to be done at a better price. Perfect. It's going to be done under more flexible terms. There's going to be a certain sharing of this risk between me and you. The way I'm going to pay you is going to be subject to delays. So, you know, so that, once we're all reasonably comfortable that this audit potential has passed us, you know, after whatever the record keeping deadline is, you know, seven or 10 years or whatever it is, then, then, you know, the balance will be paid out. And so he's got himself into this position now where he's able to cherry pick and do these deals. And he's now dictating the way the deals are going to be done and the way the risk is going to be managed because of how he's progressed through all these different stages. And that's, that's what it is. That's the progression. If you look at the world of big companies, you know, large companies very rarely start new businesses. Large companies usually acquire, except in the case of some kind of new technology. Of course. Right? And so you very rarely hear about um, a business that will go and, and just open something brand new. They're going to find a way to leverage it so it's done in a less risky way. And so let's get back to, for example, the franchises. Why are franchises recruiting franchisees to open new locations? 
instead of growing through an, uh, you know, uh, a chain model, right? And if you stop and think about it, what the franchise company is doing is they are actually trying to offset some of the risk of opening a new location through recruiting a franchisee who's going to pony up part of the money and shoulder some of the risk themselves. Of course. It's not just a one-way street. They also understand that having an owner on site means that there's a greater opportunity for success. Nobody's going to work harder and make sure that everything is done to the same degree as an owner, right? Um, but it's one of the things that I always point out to people is, is take a look at, at what you're getting into. And when it comes to franchises, I always say, make sure that the benefits that get delivered to you in exchange for that royalty and the ad fund fee are really there. When I was a business broker, I used to pay a royalty to the business brokerage uh, franchise network I was part of. And in exchange for that money, I got preferential access to a bunch of different online business for sale websites, a CRM system, a financial analysis tool. And if I had gone and bought those things as an independent brokerage, I would have paid more. Of course. So I actually saved money through the group buying power of the franchise chain and got the support and training that I wouldn't have gotten as an individual office. And so it was really a no brainer that that was a great value. There are other, you know, franchises out there where when you sit down and take a look at what you get for the royalty, you have to start to question, you know, am I really getting a good value here? One of the, one of the things that, um, that I've pointed out to people is that, you know, 30 years ago, everyone wanted to be a McDonald's franchisee because they knew that it would make them rich. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people want to be Ray Kroc because they want to create a franchise system to have everyone sending them money every month. And that's why you've seen this proliferation of of things like franchise brands. There's like thousands of them now. And you, you asked about negotiation. I was looking at a franchise agreement the other day for a lady who was looking at an opportunity and she was going to be the seventh location. And I said, all right, so here's the deal. They, they've got six other people that have signed up to this. You're number seven. You are in a huge position to be able to push back and renegotiate some of the terms of this agreement because they don't have people lining up, you know, around the corner to take this opportunity. They won't until they, until they, a few things happen. Number one, they get a lot of franchisees who, who survive for many years and really prove the value of yep. the system. And the biggest, most critical thing is having people go longer than five years, especially for a brick and mortar kind of franchise. Because if you think about a store or like a restaurant or something, the most common commercial lease is a five-year lease. And so if you get into business and you invest a bunch of money and you, you probably have to put a personal guarantee on that lease... If things are marginal, you still might keep it going because you don't want to face the personal guarantee uh, ramifications on the lease. But if things aren't going well, when that lease comes due, that's the perfect time to close, right? And so I'll say to people, like when you look at the FDD, when you look at you know other people who've, who've had this opportunity, you want to talk to people who have signed that five-year lease and then renewed it. Like the people who've gone through the first period and they've gone past that obvious opportunity to bail and they, and they want to stay in it because that, those are the ones who are really, they've got tenure, they know what it's like, they know how it's changed over the years, et cetera. 
Um, because when you're in a franchise, you really are, you know, sort of um, subrogating yourself to another person's set of rules, the, the franchise or you're an extension of them. Yeah. And in many ways, and they could have a change at their management end, which now will no longer align with what you want to do anymore. So is there, are there people jumping on the life raft at the five-year mark or the 10-year mark? And are they wanting another renewal to, you know, continue to sail along, right? Make waves. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we just bought a franchise and we're in the process of opening one up here in Toronto. And part of our FDD was no negotiations because it is a, um, a, a very popular brand mm. uh, of a multitude of brands. The, the, the mother company has a publicly traded company. They have 10 different brands under their name and it's people are lined up to get this brand, but we're the first in Canada. So we, we did have some uh, back and forth, but it was very, very minimal, very yeah. minimal. You know, there's a lot of people that have had success with franchises. I know the local family here that that runs the Tim Hortons and and they have started diversifying into gas stations, hotels and other restaurants, but every one that. of them every one of them they're doing with a franchise. Yeah. So, so they they like that model, you know, and then and they're looking to do that with their money in other categories. And uh and it seems to be working well for them. For that real individualist kind of against the grain kind of person, um, it can be challenging. I know people who've been in franchise networks who were really innovative, creative people that wanted to always try and do new things. They found it kind of constraining. So I, I think you really need to understand who you are. Do one of those personality tests. You know, there's yeah. there's many of them out there uh, and see if you really are the kind of person that that can you know, color inside the lines, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. The, w- the way I look at it is this is a business that I has a built in diagram and I have to follow that diagram and let the diagram come to fruition. If I want to be entrepreneurial, then move on to another diagram, move on yeah. to another business, but don't change that diagram at all because it's just like Lego. It'll fall apart. Well, it's, it's interesting because when you talk about a diagram, um, so when I left the bank, I sat down in a coffee shop one day with a blank piece of paper and I built a diagram for what my business was going to look like. And I did a YouTube video recently, probably in the last two months, where I talked about my sales and marketing funnel because someone asked a question. They said, you know, why do you make videos on YouTube? The revenue from YouTube must be peanuts. And, and it is, right? But I explain how it all plays together and how somebody subscribing to my YouTube channel or buying a book leads them maybe to buy one of my online courses, which allows them to get to know me better and understand what I'm about. And, and it's that no like, and trust factor, right? And then when they get into doing a deal for half a million dollars, it's, well, should I invest a couple grand with David to make sure I'm not making a half a million dollar mistake? Right. Well, at this point now that they're comfortable knowing that I can probably be helpful to them and it's probably going to be worth their while. And then they do it. And that's where my greatest billings are is when the direct one-on-one, right? So in the video, I describe my whole funnel and how things go, but it's all based on a drawing and a sketch I made, which is in a notebook right here on my desk back five years ago now. And I go back to that drawing every year and I look at it and I make tweaks to it and I make changes to it. And one of the things that I find is that a lot of people will get into business. They'll start doing business. They'll start serving customers, start making sales. They'll never make a drawing at all. 
And they'll, they'll all of a sudden end up in a position where the business is running them, where they all of a sudden are doing all these things they've committed to and they're working these 60 hour work weeks and they don't have any free time. And they, you know, and, and it's funny because those are the people I would often meet when I was a business broker. Cause I'd say, I need to sell. Why? Well, I'm burned out. You know, I'm, I'm working 60 hour weeks and I'm not earning much money. And I would just think to myself, who am I going to find to sign up to step into your shoes? You know, it's funny you bring right? this up, right? Uh, so Dave and I, when we came together to put the Making Waves Mindset show, we we said it's it's a larger community. It's a tribe. And this tribe is going to funnel down into getting to know the authentic Dave Moskowitz and Richard DiBiase. We have a trusted background in policing. That's where we were before for, for a very long time. We built community relations and people knew who we were. They knew what to expect. They knew who we are. And that brand now continues into the show. The show continues into Dave doing his franchise. My wife and I invest in real estate. And within that, there's other spinoffs and other business things that come. But people always get stuck like you guys are just doing some stupid show. And, you know, you know, maybe it's those jealous ones that haven't taken the risk to leave, to leave the nine to five, but they don't understand. Just like your diagram in the coffee shop, we've built this. And Dave and I go back and forth all the time and discuss ways we can improve the show. Can we create online content? Is there an opportunity? Well, we have online content, but what I'm getting at is something that someone is willing to go. I know these two guys when they speak, it's the truth. They're authentic. They are who they are. There's no fluffing their helium in the head to make a story sound amazing. I'm going to go buy this service or do something with them. And we constantly analyze this triangle. We basically have something because that's where it starts. And people just don't understand. Look at the big picture. Stop looking at the, mm. the macro, look at the, or the, the micro, look at the macro picture in your entrepreneurial journey. And I think Dave, as we, as we kind of look at this whole entrepreneurial mindset, what advice can you give people who let's just start the ones wanting to leave the nine to five? What should they be preparing themselves from a mindset, maybe a financial perspective or a thought process to get them into whether it's a franchise or to become their own true entrepreneur with an innovative product? What things should they be considering? I I think you have to start with self-analysis and self-knowledge. So uh, I'll tell you quite honestly, when I was younger, when I was in business brokerage, I honestly believed that people existed along a spectrum of IQ, right? I thought there were smarter people and people who weren't as smart. And I couldn't understand how I could run into people who built multi-million dollar businesses that were so disorganized and couldn't even keep an appointment book. <laughs> right? And I would so be like, it's so true. So true. I would be like, how how can this be? It, might, it would it would it was causing you know steam to come out of my ears because anxiety it didn't reconcile with my understanding of the world, and and things really cleared up for me when I discovered the Myers Briggs Personality Type Index yes. system. Yeah. So you basically do this test, and there's there's four different spectrums, and you rate one way or the other on the four different ones, and they that creates sixteen different outcomes, and then so. Um, you know, there are critics of this kind of stuff, but really it just asks you your opinion on things. Like it says, is it, do you need to be 10 minutes early to every meeting or is it okay to show up a few minutes late? Right. For me, I need to be early for an appointment Yeah. for the podcast today. Did I not sign in early? Right. You were early. Yeah. Other people really don't find it important. Yeah. Right. And so this is, these are the types of questions that are asked when you do these tests. And then it just categorizes you based on your responses. And so, 
I learned that the reason why I had certain outlooks and opinions was because of the type personality type bucket that I fell into. And that bucket is very well suited towards understanding desired goals, desired states, and then creating backwards plans to achieve them. So this is where I want to be. So that drawing I made five years ago, this is what my business will look like. And then sitting there and going, what's the first thing to do? First thing to do is this part. Then I have to do this part. Then I have to do this part, right? Many other people would not be able to do that. And so understanding if that's a failing of yours, that that's a weakness of yours, this would then lead somebody to go and look, well, how can I compensate for that weakness? Either through like a franchise system or through maybe a partnership or through maybe following a guide from someone else. Yeah. The, you know, you can find a ready-made business plan that isn't a franchise, for example, right? Like all you have to do is go down the path of a business that exists everywhere. So like, like a plumbing business, right? There's plumbing businesses in every town. You can go and you can buy books on running your plumbing business, right? The, and it's, yeah. it'll tell you like, this is how you do it. And so that's an example of a model that someone else has just put together that you just have to follow, right? And so understand who you are, understand what your goals are. What are you trying to get out of it? So when I sat down and I drew that, that sketch, my number one thing was that my kids were young at the time and I'm a single dad. So I had to build a business that would take advantage of my expertise in a place without a, in a market space that didn't have a whole lot of competitors. So I could charge good rates for myself. And it had to be a business that I could operate from home between eight 30 and one 30 when the kids were in school. Very important. And so, so those were the criteria that I had to build the business to fit inside of now the kids are teenaged. So, you know, I can work till five now, right? They come home on their own. They make their own snack or whatever. And, and so things have changed over time, but that's what I had to do when I was starting off. And so for, for your own self, figure out what is the criteria? What do I need to get out of this? And look at the upside and the downside. So this is, is another big problem that I run into with people is they'll say, this is the business I want to do. So you know, I want to open a cupcake shop or whatever it is. I'll go, okay, great. What's the worst thing that could happen? Well, that's pretty easy to sketch out. And it'll say, what is the absolutely best, most optimal outcome? And then you might realize, well, wait a minute, because of the capacity of this business, because of the hours, because of the space, because of the sales and what we can charge and what we, the most we think we can charge. If everything fires on all cylinders and there's no problems whatsoever, the absolute best outcome is this. And you realize that the best outcome is completely small and disproportionately small compared to the negative outcome possibility. Yeah. And you realize if I get into this business, I'm basically locking myself into limited upsides, but big downsides, right? And so does it make sense to do that? Well, maybe it makes sense if we can figure out a way to do it with a quarter of the investment. Right. And this is where I get back to the risk arbitrage thing. Is it when you're understanding what is the possible upside, what is the possible downside, and where can we manage those risks? So, with the cupcake shop example, you think, well, maybe what we really need to do is instead of having the storefront location in the expense of real estate, let's go for a cheaper industrial locale. Let's build it on a wholesale model and let's put our cupcakes in other places and sell them online. Now, our growth isn't limited anymore. 
mm-hmm. right? We can expand and, and we won't have clientele tied to this location. If we need to move to a bigger spot, we can, and nobody will know, right? Cause nobody's coming here anyway, except the delivery driver. Right. And so look at what your criteria are, measure yourself, do some self-knowledge, self-introspection, figure out what your strengths and weaknesses are and, and look at the ups and downsides and then figure out a way for it to make sense. A lot of, a lot of people in the world of small business get into what my buddy Rick calls small ball. They'll, they'll lock themselves into a business that just doesn't have the potential. It's okay. If you understand that and you choose to get into it anyway, right? Like there are lifestyle businesses that people want to pursue. One of the ones that I kind of point out and make fun of a lot are, you know, bed and breakfasts here in the Maritimes. We have a lot of bed and breakfasts, but you know, you're busy in the summer and your rooms are full. That's going to be doing in the winter. How much, how much revenue you can have, and the winter you're going to be you're going to be slow, um, you know. And then when you get tired of running that bed and breakfast for a few years, who are you going to sell it to? And then, and of course, the answer is someone who just sold their home for two million dollars in Mississauga, who wants, uh, who always had the dream of owning a bed and breakfast <laughs> bed and bre- yeah. in Maritimes, right? Yeah. And and that's the cycle, and so. I had to laugh. I thought you were going to say something like, oh, it's an Instagram influencer who's flown around the world taking pictures of them eating. And, you know, that's all you see. It's like, that's not realistic. I, Dave, I was in Miami some... last weekend. I have. I four, saw I was I saw your Instagram. I was I have wondering what you were 30 doing. 30 pictures on my phone yeah. of people setting up the perfect Instagram yeah. shot. Yeah. Yeah. With the lighting and cameras. And I'm like. It's the oh, fakeness. This crazy. This is so crazy. The, but, the lengths people are going when, into. To when you said when you said lifestyle life. business, I thought you were going to say the business, the franchise that I just bought. Because <laughs> it is it is a lifestyle business, but it's it's health and wellness. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, this is when, when you get open, let me know. And and uh, are you going to have a space? Yes, we do. It's brick and mortar, and we have we have we're just in lease negotiations right now. Ah, cool. Yeah. We should do a business event there. Yeah, definitely. Sure. Yeah, it's a pretty That'll big space, so yeah, for sure. I think, David, in closing, one of our mottos, our, our main motto on the show is to dream bigger. You have to. If you don't, you know, then you're just going to be in this run, mundane rat circle, and you got to make waves, so you got to challenge yourself. You have to splash around in the water, and, and, and then the last is you have to take action. Do you find people are struggling at taking the action? Because just in that last tidbit, you you hit a lot of things there that most people are like, what do, you, what do you mean? I have to do a personality or a suitability assessment. I got to get a piece of paper out. It's the taking action that everyone's afraid of. It's like, I want the instant gratification. Like you said, you have photos of people taking pictures so they can show everyone, look at me instead of, but maybe to get there, it wasn't that easy. There was a lot of things in between. They had to take action. Do you find that in closing to be a struggle? And is there something that people can do to overcome that? Can we go for three or four minutes on this? Oh, we have all the time in the world. (laughs) So so listen, there's a, there's a, a famous economist named Ludwig von Mises. He's the, the, the father of the Austrian school is what they call him. And one of the things that he purported was that there is an order of, of wants or desires that is in constant flux in a person's life. So an example that I often use when I'm trying to explain this is if you have a $5 bill in your pocket, and you go into work at an office and there's like a hot dog cart there, but it's nine 30 in the morning. You just had breakfast. So what do you, what would you rather have the $5 bill or the hot dog? Right? So at that moment, your desire for the $5 bill is greater than your desire to buy a hot dog. Interesting. Fast forward to noon hour and you're coming out on your lunch break 
And the order of demands has now changed. You now probably will say, well, I'd rather have the hot dog. So I'm going to take the $5 bill out and trade with the guy, right? I'll give him the $5. He'll give me the hot dog, right? And so what I think is there's a lot of people out there who will talk about their hopes and dreams and what they want to do. And they say, I want to be in business. I want to have a business. But their behaviors will never be congruent with the order of their desires. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you're going to quit your job, to get into business, for example, the best way to do that is to quit your job when you have $30,000 in a savings account. That's right. Versus when you have none, right? And so somebody who says, I want to be in business one day and then goes out and buys a big screen TV and puts it on their credit card is is behaving in a way that is not congruent with the stated desire of being in business. Because if their real goal is to be in business, then they need to build that savings account so that they can feel comfortable quitting their job, for example, right? And so I've challenged people on this a lot, especially with things like weight loss, right? They'll be like, oh, you keep saying you want to lose weight, but I saw you go and buy a donut. Well, I wanted the donut. It's only one donut. I'm like, okay, but it's still like three or 400 calories or whatever. And if you really wanted to lose weight, you would realize that you shouldn't be buying the, the donut. You should be snacking on cauliflower or whatever, right? Yeah. And, and so you, you have to challenge people because sometimes in that order of desires, owning a business isn't really in the order of desires. What is in the order of desires is a desire to be perceived as a person going places or achieving things. So we talked about the Instagram influencers, right? They're taking these perfect life shots, which aren't real. Yeah. To show everyone else that they have this real, this beautiful life, which they don't. Right. And so there are, there is this group of people called the entrepreneurs and they, they are out there telling people (laughs) that they want to be in business, that they want to be an entrepreneur, that they're going someplace, that they're going to do something someday, but they don't actually sit down and make a plan and execute. Right. And so I think that if someone is listening to this and they're thinking, if I just listen to enough of this stuff, I will develop the courage to quit my job. No, you won't. You actually need to sit down and you need to make a plan of what you really want and what you're willing to give in exchange for that. Right. So, you know, what do I mean by what are you willing to give? Well, are you willing to give up your house in the suburbs and move into an apartment so you can save money faster? Are you willing to give up your car and ride transit so that you can save money faster so that you can have that, that savings account, right? Mm-hmm. Are, are you willing to not go on a vacation in Miami because it ends up costing you three or four grand, right? So if you really have a desire and a goal to be in business, then you have to actually start to act in a congruent fashion with that stated goal. And if you're not willing to do that, Take the thing off the yeah. list. David, that was so well free, said. Free yourself from the, the, yeah. the thing, the cloud, right? Hanging over you. I, I'm laughing inside because we talk about that all the time. All the if time. you would want to get into business, you need to make some of those sacrifices. If you want to lose weight, you need to make sacrifices. It's all about those sacrifices, right? Cut down that Netflix time. Yeah. We educate yourself. Go take a but course. Since, since we started the show, Dave, how many people come back to us going, well, I haven't started yet. I, I literally this morning, just before Dave and I got on and before we started speaking to you, I had somebody who's been telling me that they're going to start their weight loss journey. And I called them out as they were stuffing their face with this 
chicken sandwich egg big mac sauce creation they made i said oh yeah weren't you starting your new lifestyle january 3rd and they go shut up you know i'm being comedic but at what point are you going to control and take charge of your destiny you're not doing it so don't come back to dave and i in six months going oh it must be nice to have this must be nice because dave and i took action david you took action You are today where you are because you were able to scale up, think ahead, come up with plans and do something and not sit in that rat race. And that's why Dave and I come together on the show is we escape the nine to five. We're encouraging others. There is tremendous benefit to doing it, but there's a lot of hard work on the other side and it's not going to be handed to you. So put in the work and take action. David, where can our audience find you? You mentioned you have a book. Uh, I follow you on Instagram. Do you have LinkedIn websites? Let the yeah. world know how we can connect. So the, the central nervous system to everything I do is at davidcbarnett.com. Perfect. And it's my blog site. So all the new postings go up there. You know, when this show goes live, I'll put it there as a blog post too. So people can see where I've talked, appeared on other people's shows. Awesome. Link to my LinkedIn, you know, link to Instagram, all that stuff. And um, yeah, if, if people are interested in business deals, I suggest you, you follow my YouTube channel or subscribe to my podcast, which is just the audio from the YouTube channel. But um, that's all I'm talking about is, is, the, is deal making and the questions people bring up about deal making uh, and how things are done. And um, yeah, I've got a bunch of books on Amazon. There's actually seven now. I've got one what? I'm working on right now. Oh, wow. And, yeah, it's... it's um, it's actually part of my sales funnel because some people to be. look to Amazon. They're like, how do I do this? And they go looking for a book. Yeah. And so that's, that's part of uh, what brings people to me as well. That's incredible. David we will have to have you on again. And there is such a wealth of knowledge that you've brought to the audience. And I know people are going to ask questions. So you know, you know where to find them uh, in closing, Dave, where can we find you? I'm on uh, LinkedIn and Instagram. David um, Dave Moskowitz. Beautiful. And you can find yours truly on Instagram, TikTok. Again, we're also on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining the Make the Waves Mindset Show. Thank you, David, a fellow Canadian, for being with us. And as always, you have to dream bigger, you need to make waves, and you have to take action. We'll talk to you on our next episode. Thanks, guys. And that concludes episode 41 of the Making Waves Mindset Show. Of course, we would like to thank David Barnett for taking time and sharing his experience with the Making Waves Mindset community. You know where to find us, makingwavesmindset.com. As always, write a review, leave a star rating, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from all of you. Until next time, continue to dream bigger, make waves, and take action in life.